This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with biomechanical analyst and former ECB employee, Paul Felton. He discusses the work into fast bowling and how biomechanics are used to assess and adjust bowlers' actions, the key theory for fast bowling, and what this looks like during a development pathway, as well as how these principles can be utilised on the pitch and utilising coaching staff to support the research. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Paul, really appreciate you jumping on with uh, with me this morning. Um, before uh, we go into a very in depth world of biomechanics and, and your your practice uh, practice in there, how are things your end? Are you all good? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Um, obviously, back end of a long summer of cricket and just about to restart teaching at Nottingham Trent University with our sports science and sports coaching intake over the next few months, I guess, and then. Yeah, back into cricket again around April time. Awesome. So do you want to give people a bit of a whistle-stop tour, I guess, of who you are um, and what you do and I guess a little bit of what your uh, side project, side passion is? Um, I know there's loads of stuff out there on social media, which is how I found you. But yeah, just a little bit of a whistle-stop tour of who you are, etc. Yeah, no problem. I kind of float in a space between academia and practice and research um, in terms of what I do. So day to day, I'm a senior lecturer in biomechanics at Nottingham Trent University. So I do the normal academia university thing in terms of teaching students and doing research. Um, And then my research focus from a very early career research was very heavily predominantly cricket. So I was very fortunate to be at Loughborough doing a master's when a PhD came up in um, fast bowling with the England Cricket Wales or the England and Wales Cricket Board um, and that was with Kevin Shine and Mark King and I spent the best part of 10 years working with them around the things that prevent fast bowlers being able to bowl really quickly um, and trying to understand actually while we know what the best do how what prevents them doing it at the moment um, and learned a great deal from both of those people um, and then Around 2019, I moved on from Loughborough and England cricket and to Nottingham Trent, and I've carried on doing bits and pieces within my consultancy business, um, working with people such as uh, Western Australia cricket, Cricket Island, Western Storm. Um, so that probably ticks off all the boxes from a cricket perspective. And then I have some other ongoing research. So I'm quite interested in prosthetic blades at the moment and how the height and stiffness and shape of them affect what we do in our movements. But applying that to sport as well. So are there actually ways that we can manufacture and design blades to help Paralympic athletes achieve what they want to achieve? Um, And I've been lucky enough to have some work in that area as well with Steph Reid, who was a long jump and sprint athlete with GB at Tokyo and London and the Olympics in between that. Um, So yeah, kind of fill that space between trying to answer athletes and practitioners and coaches questions whilst doing the research from an academic point of view as well. So in short, very busy, I think is the, the line that we can go with there. But yeah, loads of interesting stuff. So I guess the first question for me is how did you get uh, into this area and why is it of interest to you? Yeah, so I kind of fell into biomechanics in a way. So I was very good at maths from a really young age. Um, like from primary school, I was always at the top of the class excelling in maths and 
it was always a natural choice to keep doing maths. So I did maths and further maths at college. And then when it came to the end of college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do and didn't really want to go out to work. So I carried on to uni and did a maths degree. And then it got to the end of my maths degree and I was doing the typical interviews for like business placements, going into working in supermarkets um, and coming into their management structures. And I just sat there and thought, this isn't really what I want to do. It doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. So I sat at my laptop one afternoon and just typed in maths and sport and a master's in biomechanics at Loughborough where I'd studied was the top choice. So I just went, when I had an interview or a meeting with the person that was in charge of the course and spoke to mum and dad about would the bank roll me for a year to carry on. And I did that master's in 2009. And then luckily enough, really fortunate that at the end of 2009, the PhD that Peter Worthington did with England and Wales Cricket Board finished. Um, and they were really interested in carrying on the research and I was in the right place at the right time. And it kind of snowballed from there, to be honest. Um, but from a personal point of view, I've played cricket since I was five or six. I tend, I was probably the worst person at football at school, and but the best person at cricket. So it was kind of a natural choice when cricket came around that I've always been interested in cricket because I've been sort of okay at it over the years um so yeah it kind of aligns my passion with the sport but also my mathematical talents and so um it doesn't feel like work I'm quite lucky it feels like a hobby getting out of bed most days yeah and a very good uh, space to be in so you mentioned Peter Worthington and his work can you just give us a bit of an oversight of I guess what that work was and then some of the the key outcomes of it um which has informed practice moving forward yeah so for those that are old enough you probably remember the 2005 ashes that england beat australia for the first time in god knows how long um for those that are a bit younger we don't often beat us well we went for a period where we didn't beat australia for very long many years or 20 odd years so being australia now is a bit of a luxury um but we had a really good pace attack in that 2005 ashes so people like andrew flintoff steve harmison matthew hoggard um simon jones they're all bowling about 90 miles an hour and troy cooley was the bowling coach at the time and he'd come from australia and was quite interested in the research and science around fast bowling um, and he started to talk to loughborough where the national cricket performance center was based um and an academic called mark king who spent 20 years w- working in cricket now and who was my supervisor for my phd and was pete worthington's supervisor and um, but they just started to discuss ways that they could look at research and they started with they wanted to know what the best did to bowl fast so it was kind of a not a, well like a performance analysis project but using biomechanics they were looking at all the technique attributes that the fastest bowlers had and what they you needed to do to bowl fast um troy cooley left about 2006 and kevin shine came in and took over um, and we'll probably talk about kevin shine and the role he's had on me late at some point in this discussion but kevin and mark put together this phd that pete Wormington did around looking at whether um, or how the fastest bowled um, from a technical point of view. But another question that was really prevalent at the time was everybody kept getting injured. So they started to look at the ground reaction forces to see whether the fastest bowlers actually had the bigger forces. And um, so it was kind of a performance and an injury PhD to start to dip your toe in the water to try and understand what these people were doing within these movement patterns. Okay, so if we look at it generically, um, I guess in a biomechanical piece, when you're looking and you're analysing these types of uh, movements, what's the process you go through? Because you know you can go, you can break down everything from a golf swing to a, a football kit to a you know a bowl, etc., cricket bowl. So yeah, what's the process of actually understanding what the right question is or what you're actually trying to get out of that specific study or breakdown? 
Yeah, so I think one of the things that's really important from the work that we've done is we've always tried to start with the question rather than the data. Um, so we've always tried to go into data collections understanding what we wanted to ask rather than going in collecting loads of data and then trying to data mine it afterwards to go, what questions can we answer from this set of data? Um, and there's positives and negatives of both approaches, I guess. Um, we are quite fortunate within that period I was working with England Cricket that we did do data or annual data screening. So every September, October, we'd have probably 15 of the best bowlers in the country come in and be analysed. Um, and that was from walking through the door. They'd walk through the door, they'd do some anthropometric range of motion tests, they'd do a physio physiotherapy test, strength and conditioning test. And then they'd come down to the dance floor, as we used to like to call it, on the bottom in the National Centre. Um, so the National Centre is like a big sports centre, but it's completely kitted out for cricket. So it's got a cricket uh, astroturf nets, um, surfaces. You can get a full run up in there. So the players came in, it's got a force plate around where they land on the front foot so we can measure the forces. And we'd set that up with all of our motion capture system and put lots of different markers on players and then get them to bowl a multiple amount of times. So we started to break it down towards the end in looking at different deliveries, um, different drills, um, because we thought it's, it's really important that towards the end, not only understanding what they do, but how you get to that point as well um, and skill acquisition and talent development point of view we're starting to get into them rabbit holes towards the end of what we did um in 2019 but it started off with just uh get as much data as we can around the best knowing that we wanted to look at the bowling phase um and what you were saying about these movement patterns and where you start my thinking now has changed a whole heap from where i started and we generally focused on what the bowling phase, which is from front foot contact to ball release to start with. And now there's research that's starting to move backwards and looking at the relationship between how you run and how you bowl and how you go from your run up into front foot contact. So that gather phase or preparation phase, if you want to call it that. So you can kind of think now of bowling as three different movements that are stitched together. So run up, there's some sort of organizational phase where you go from your run up to front foot contact. And then you've got this, delivery of power or momentum from front foot contact to when you actually release the ball. And then you can't really forget about the bit afterwards as well when you try and dissipate and control all that force as well because um, it's not like javelin when they land on their chests and just stop. They do have to kind of get back on their feet, get off the pitch, make sure they're not going to get hit in the head when the ball comes back to them. Or even try, if you're a spin bowler, try and get in a position where you can take a catch that comes back at you as well. So um, it's kind of three main keys to do the skill, but then you've got to remember that there's a... Um, a phase at the end where you have to like get back into a position that allows you to complete or get out of the way and so in terms of like level of sensor etc how many uh and what body parts are being censored up uh, i know from uh like videos and stuff you see it in computer games quite a lot when they're trying to mirror images of people doing particular strokes or shots and they can mirror that across yeah. and they have the the headbands on with a load of sensors and they have the same sticky bits on your elbows and stuff. So yeah, what what level of sensor in terms of amount and, and body parts would you have used during that study? Yeah, it's a great question. It's obviously changing massively with technology at the moment as well. So we started with, um, I'd, I think it's about 60 markers over body. So, let's just um, so we struggle with... Um, really detailed things like fingers but we can do wrists elbows shoulders um, we break the back into three different pieces as well to look at stress fractures we 
look at the hips, knees, ankles, etc. So we can break the body up into, I think it's about 18 different segments. Um, and we do that using the reflective markers that you've probably seen um, in various places. And then moving forward. So that was how we started in 2005. And to be honest, our testing structure hasn't changed too much since then. Um, but we are now seeing more and more technology. So you have um, inertial measurement units and accelerometers that people are starting to use and body suits, which do a very similar thing, but just using a different technology. And we're starting to enter the world of what they're calling markerless capture, where we just create or collect videos and then some very funky computer software that everyone kind of alludes to as machine learning or artificial intelligence kind of works out where these body segments are and overlays it on top. Um, and then can do a similar same thing. So I don't think we should get too hung up on all the different methods of doing that in terms of what's right and what's wrong um, and what's more accurate than others. There obviously some have advantages and disadvantages in terms of accuracy and where you can take them. So you can record video anywhere, but our lab stuff has to be in the lab. Um, but yeah, I think it could change quite a lot in the next 10 or 15 years with being able to do stuff outdoors, computer power and stuff. We may move away from this markless stuff. Um, and Viacon, who... I've spent a great deal of time with in terms of emotion analysis system and company. They've started to launch markerless systems recently as well. So it's, yeah, it's a massive area that's changing very quickly. Um, and I kind of feel like a dinosaur and I've only been in it 10, 15 years, which is scary. There's an AI is coming for everyone. I think using those software things that are definitely of use. So moving now, I guess, to the, the data it can actually collect, um, what are the key principles or key identifiers for those fast bowlers that are able to bowl consistently fast? Yeah, so Pete Wormington's research, which was preceded mine, kind of had four key headlines which came out of that research. And it was that the fastest had the fastest run-ups. They generally kept their front legs straighter. They trunk flex more. So their trunks move towards the batsman over the top of their pelvis further between front foot contact and ball release. And they generally had a delayed shoulder, um, which meant if you think about if you stand with your arms above your head, their arms were behind their heads, so further backwards. And what that means or allows you to do is you can maximize your trunk flexion, which has all the powerful rotation and trunk flexion muscles in it more, whilst still being able to delay the ball being delivered. So rather than actually using your shoulder to deliver the ball, you generally use the trunk and then the shoulder plays a smaller part at the end. So it's kind of a series of a sequence of movements rather than just movements in isolation so those four key parameters came out and then the research since then has, kind of, has added a couple more so some of the research that i've done show that a higher front arm might be important as well um but most of my research has kind of backed up what pete's found which is good because i took a theoretical approach and he used an experimental approach and um, so it's nice that it's kind of all tied together um and then another person, Peter Allway, who's done a lot on stress fractures, has highlighted some key um, technical features within the bowling sequence, which distinguish between those that get stress fractures and those that don't. So we kind of tie that into our coach education now in terms of if you do the bits that don't get you injured, it also gets you into a good position to for performance as well. They're not um, separate things, they're related. So which is quite good as well because you don't want to have to make a choice between getting injured or having high performance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we'll loop back around to the injury one because, again, it, it's a really interesting topic of conversation around the, the level of injury there. So I guess from a practical perspective, when you've got these um, insights and you've got this knowledge base, how does it actually 
um, then get applied. So I guess from a coaching perspective or from a sports science perspective, when you're trying to work with the players, what does the application of those uh, insights look like? Yeah, I think this is where the from well, it's where it gets tricky from the Pete Wervington research, and this is I kind of like call it a pandemic or epidemic at the moment of the fastest bowlers have the fastest run ups. So you can take that as a coach and go, well, I've just got to run my bowler up quicker and he'll run, he'll bowl quicker. But this, um, and this is a problem of experimental research where all your findings are just on average of the group. So in a group of elite fast bowlers, the fastest had the fastest run-ups. But if you take a junior bowler and run him up as fast as an elite bowler, you can guarantee he's probably either going to fall over and land on his face, which isn't going to come back and ask you for any more advice, or he'll get injured and fall over and or it'll just completely ruin their performance. Um, and so from applying them, it becomes quite difficult. So we knew that those were the four characteristics that we wanted to look at or ID. So this research from Pete kind of went into talent ID and went off to directors of cricket to say, if you've got bowlers showing these sort of positions, nurture them and help them maintain them because they're actually really difficult positions to get into from a strength perspective at a young age. So it's not natural to bowl like that at a young age because it's really difficult to get into. So you tend to throw more of a straight arm when you're younger because A, you don't run up as fast and it's a lot easier to throw it with your muscles rather than use your run up momentum to bowl with. Um, without trying to get into the two technical differentials between the two kind of styles of bowling. Um, so Pete's work kind of, or Peter Worthington's work kind of went into talent ID and like keep an eye on these players. But then my PhD was born out of that to say, actually, how do we coach this in terms of how do we know when players need to run up quick or, or maybe they're running up too fast and we need to slow them down. Um, and I was quite fortunate. I did a theoretical PhD around that, but I was also working with Kevin Shine at the time and applying ideas um, and was within a safe space of me and Kevin having, well, days in rooms looking at bowlers' actions and throwing ideas around and being able to go and apply them in a safe space, um, stopping and looking and saying, actually, does that or doesn't it work? And going back to the drawing board. Um, I think that's one of the key things I'd get across to all coaches is that some of these changes are six month changes, but you have to kind of look at them almost on a session by session basis to make sure that what you're trying to do is actually coming across in the drills you do. And um, we had instances where we gave a drill to one bowler and it worked perfectly, but we'd give it to another bowler and it completely have the opposite effect. And we'll like, right, right. If we give them that for six months, it's going to ruin them. So you have to bin it straight away and try and find another way for the way they learn and how their body works and wants to go about completing a drill. So yeah, loads of really interesting learnings from trying to apply it, but it wasn't easy to start with because you're still guessing a little bit of where your bowler is compared to an elite bowler, if that makes sense. Yeah, I guess that that research um, that you discussed there and that the applied bit, could you talk us through like an example of where it went particularly well or went particularly poorly and how, I guess, you reflected on that to uh, yeah change the way you suggested stuff or yeah what that looked like? Yeah, so um, I've been quite so in my PhD. Um, I took an 18 year old bowler that was kind of earmarked or pinpointed that had potential but didn't bowl very quickly at the time. Um, so that bowler bowled at about 80 miles an hour at 18, but to be elite, you need to be pushing the upper end of 80s, um, even into 90 miles an hour, depending on what your skills are, how good you are around that consistency so the ecb kind of look at four points for an elite bowler it's not just pace it's pace bounce skills um, and consistency so they don't 
I think to be elite, you need to be excellent in three of those four areas. Um, so that's kind of, so you can see why some bowlers are slower, but they've still got the other three that are really good and they still become international players. So um, in terms of examples with this 18-year-old, we were quite fortunate in a way because all of his traits were below what we expected. So we were able to add about 10 miles an hour onto his ball speed over a coaching period based on the research that we did. So to touch on my PhD, um, which is around investigating limiting factors of bowlers, I can I built a computer simulation model. And the easiest way to kind of explain this is a bit like playing a PlayStation or an Xbox game where you've got something on the screen and you've got loads of buttons and the buttons make it do different things and you kind of see what happens. So we built a model of a bowler um, and we could then customize this model to the bowler so it was specific to them. So with the bowler in question, we took him onto a dynamometer, which allows you to measure the strength of all their joints. Um, and spent 12 hours with him, chucking Lucas Aid and Haribo to keep him energized. And we get max maximal strength measures. So you put all of that data into the model. So you can say, right, now you've got the model. It knows how strong the bowler is. We take loads of measurements. There's about 90 that we take. So we know that the model then has the right size and shape, has the right strength. And then you can ask the model to do things once you've validated it. So we validate it by comparing it to what they do now. Because if the model can't copy what they're already doing, we know it's not a very good model. So it gives us a good idea of whether we're on the right tracks of the level of complexity within our models. And then once we've done that, we get the PlayStation controller out and go, right, run in a little bit faster or change their technique at front foot contact, get into a different position um, and then start to have a look at the effects this has on their ball speed. Um, so we did this with the bowler at 18. Um, it came up that he could bowl a lot quicker with keeping his legs straight, trunk flexing more, being more delayed, which was nice from a, it validated the previous piece of research. And then our next job was in the applied world. How do we actually start to do this? And we started to develop drills. And what was really nice about that was that we started with the position at front foot contact. And then Kevin Shine came back to me and said, I can't get him in this position. Can I run him up quicker? And we could go back to the model and ask the model, what happens if we run him up quicker? And the model actually said, yeah, you can go a little bit quicker and it allowed us to have a little bit more um, confidence that what we were doing in the applied setting had some theoretical background behind it and we weren't going to break them. Um, and yeah, they came back and bowled about eight, nine, 10 miles an hour quicker when we first looked at them. Um, and they've been in and around England squad since then. So um, that's a nice story, but forever, but, we're quite lucky that we haven't had any real horror stories from a modeling point of view. A lot of the players, we went on from that PhD. I stayed on for another four years in a technical excellence project. So I modeled another 10 players. And I think at least four or five of them have played international cricket for England now. And then the two or three others have been there or thereabouts or having very good county careers. Um, but I obviously have been involved in things that aren't completely PhD wise. So we've had some horror stories from an illegal actions point of view where when I first started, and Charlie Morris at Worcester won't worry, won't be worried about me talking about it. So we've talked; he's quite clean for me to tell this story and help coaches. Um, so Charlie Morris burst onto the scene, had a really good season, and then got called for an illegal action. Um, and Shiny asked me to come and help with Matt Mason, who was a bowling coach at Worcester at the time. And we probably spent six to nine months trying to change his technique to allow him to bowl with a straight arm. Um, and for listeners that don't know what the illegal action rule is, you have to bowl with a straight arm in cricket. And it's a little bit more convoluted because you're allowed 15 degrees of extension between when your arms level with the horizontal and ball release. 
um, which gets measured with a, another whole load of markers and it's really complicated and they have to come and be tested. Um, but we won't get too worried about that because Charlie was over 15 degrees. Um, and it was always considered it was a technical issue. So we spent about nine months going down this technical route, trying different drills, couldn't get anything to work. And then one of my best friends in my PhD office, uh, Stuart McKernan Naylor, who you may have heard or come across, he's quite active on social media, um, was a GB youth uh, judoka. And he did, we were playing cricket in the corridor one afternoon and he was trying to bowl and he could not get his arm up from bowl with a straight arm. And I just said to him, can you just put your arms up like above the horizontal? And he couldn't. And there was this light bulb moment. Actually, Charlie's issue was nothing to do with technique. It was just a physical problem um, that he couldn't get in the positions that we need him to. And we then went away and worked with the physio and got him back. And he ended up playing professional cricket for a number of years and then had to retire this summer due to a knee injury. But um, yeah, it was a great, Charlie came up with two things for me. One was look what limits players doing, what you need them to do first. Don't try and match them to what the best do um, and then try and get them to copy because um, they can't. And Butch Harmon, the golf commentator, has got a great phrase of he'd be a billionaire if everybody that had come to him to be coached to have Tiger Woods swing had been, was able to do it. Because um, he's like, if you want to have Tiger Woods swing, you need to be Tiger Woods because you haven't got all the physical components to be able to be Tiger Woods. Um, so I think that's a kind of a nice way of packaging up that and remembering that actually you're coaching that individual and not coaching them to do something another individual does. Um, and then the other thing with Charlie is he came up with the phrase of um, paralysis by analysis, which he probably didn't make up, but he, that, he brought that to my attention that we are actually videoing every single time he bowled and not allowing him to have that space of going wrong or having a practice space um, and trying to find his own way through it. So um yeah that kind of area as well actually you need a safe space and sometimes the cameras have to be turned off and you have to be able to get it wrong and be able to fail to be able to move forwards which was a nice learning lesson as well and I think Lancashire I've heard like I've talked a bit with Glenn Chapel, the Lancashire coach and they have a space during pre-season where they kind of have a video net and then all the other nets are just do it go and practice your skills if you want to learn a slower ball it's not being videoed but when you come into the video net that's when you've got to switch on I think that also is a nice way of building pressure into sessions as well in terms of game kind of pressure versus practice pressure. But that's another kind of aspect of it. Yeah, no, I think that's a really nice way, as you said, building that pressure, but also allowing them the freedom and creativity to play around with stuff because, you know, they do, they will know their own body and how what, how it all feels, etc. I guess the, the bit that I really like that you're discussing as well is the individualization that you can have on it. So the fact that the model can kind of go right I can put in all these factors and it's a different type of bowler to what I've had before. Um, the fact that you can be uber individualized to that player and allow them to, um, yeah, like what you said at the end there is like, you can't be Tiger Woods every single time. So actually what can this individual do and what can we maximize for them, which allows them to have success? Yeah, and what's been really interesting is that the latest paper I've just published, we took the 10 players and then looked for the commonalities and the commonalities align with what the experimental paper showed. So it's nice that every time they try and get better, the technique changes to what we believe is the best technique, but they don't all get to the optimal technique. Some like So some of them still bend their front legs a little bit, but they get a little bit straighter within what they can do. Um, and yeah, I think 
my practice now works as nobody's perfect. We're always working towards perfect. And I think that's a nice way of looking at it. That You need to know what perfect is, but actually you're not coaching people to get to perfect. They're never going to be perfect. But if you can move them a little bit closer to it, then hopefully they'll improve. And how do you manage it with um, the skill aspect? Because obviously you mentioned there, like bowlers, ultimately, yeah, we want them to bowl fast. But if you bowl fast and your first ball ends up like um, Steve Harmison in the ashes where it goes down leg side, that's no use to anyone. And so how do you get them to... to under adopt these changes whilst also understanding you may have a little bit of skill drop off for a period but you can get that back because i imagine for for a bowler or near international bowler who's got a good understanding of their body and their techniques to go from being able to hit the ball on a particular length and particular line with a particular outcome to then it may be being slightly more erratic and giving batsmen more opportunities to score runs, et cetera. It can become quite uh, frustrating or upsetting or whatever you want to call it because you're not having the level of success that you you did previously. I think that's a great point to kind of pick up on that we don't do this for everybody. Um, so there's a there's a the kind of crystal ball approach of when's it the right time to approach this so um would you change somebody that's taking 100 wickets a season but bowls at 80 miles an hour into somebody that bowls 90 miles an hour with the hope that they might take 150 wickets when you know 100 wickets a season more than anybody else anyway so so it's that we do have these conversations with players around this is what you could achieve this is what you are achieving and i don't think many of us would go and change someone that's got ultra skills for the sake of just making them quicker it'd be a conversation there around the whole package and where they want to go in terms of cricket bowling we're quite lucky that actually when you start to try and improve these things consistency gets better and their control gets better because a lot of bowling technique is alignment so when we start to make these changes and align players better they tend to have more or less degrees of freedom for things to go wrong so they actually find more control um which isn't maybe necessarily true in some of the other big, powerful hitting techniques. So cricket is kind of unique that if you can run up fast enough, you don't have time between front foot contact and ball release to fire your muscles. So the top end really elite bowlers don't really use any of their muscles to bowl. Whereas then if you start to run up slower, it kind of gets back into that phrase of muscle in it or trying to use your shoulder, as they like to say, where you do start to use some of the big trunk torsional muscles. Um, and it's a big conversation at the moment because obviously male and female cricket and female cricket's taking off at rapid rate of knots. But actually coaching them to do what the elite males do that run up fast enough to not be able to use their muscles may not be really appropriate because due to physiological reasons, they're never going to be able to run up as quick as men. Most of that's probably because of the, the height difference. Um so they actually use more rotational muscles. So we're having conversations with coaches around and SNC coaches in particular around how do we strengthen these areas of the body? Um, and it's not as black and white as male and female because adolescents have a similar issue, both male and females, and also sub elite bowlers or somewhere in between. So it's like, I don't kind of tend to talk too much about male or female bowling from um, a sex's point of view and kind of think about it as a staircase on where your strength height differences are that, if you've got all of them, you'll be at the top bowling 100 miles an hour, but actually you can still be very effective lower down. You've just got to understand how the technique kind of morphs towards different things. Um, so. Yeah, no, that, that was going to actually answer my next question. So you look at the the pathway piece 
how do you begin to lay the foundations for it? So obviously you've got the younger bowlers that might be 13, 14 years age. And you mentioned earlier that uh, they're obviously not going to bowl as fast, but the, their frame is going to be vastly different, both because they're going through puberty, et cetera, but also you haven't gone through, you know, uh, S&C programs year upon year upon year to make your body as robust. So what's the kind of foundation pieces you put in place along the pathway to hopefully get into a point at the top end, they have a better chance of being able to fulfill the criteria you mentioned earlier? It's a really great question. This question is quite prevalent with a few people in cricket at the moment. I have quite a lot of conversations with Stuart Barnes at Warwickshire about this, about how do we actually take Joe Bloggs at 11 and try and make them in the right place at 19. I've even had these conversations with one of my friends at our local cricket club about if they're moving into under-13s, what are the tick boxes that the under-13 coach needs to know that they can do um, so that they can then move them on to be in the right place for under-15s, et cetera? Um, and that's from a technical, physical, except mental and probably tactical point of view as well. But um, when I was working with Matthew Mason um, over COVID, we were doing some work. With, I was doing some work with Western Australia kind of as a freebie because we we're both well i was in particular very bored and not doing a lot of cricket because we were stuck inside and i was getting videos and conversations and i think both of our wives got sick of us like talking to each other over phone at midnight at various places so he was in out in perth and i was in loughborough um yeah so it was kind of we didn't talk to our wives very many evenings in covid um but we started to have these discussions because they were still of the opinion in western australia that mixed actions were really bad and some of the injury research that Peter always done kind of goes away from that sort of thinking. Um, and I was lucky that Pete's research was coming out at a time when Matt was asking the same questions. So we were kind of able to kind of, again, apply some of that before it became out in papers and common knowledge, et cetera, and see what worked and didn't work. Um, but we're going back away from the injury perspective, but kind of tying to the injury bit a little bit is if you can't practice, you can't get better. So I think, from a junior point of view, we came up with the phrase of safe before pace, um, which was, can we get young bowlers working on alignment, making sure that they're not doing these big change of directions in run-ups and then trying to almost discus throw or hammer throw the ball down because they can bowl quicker that way. But actually, we know that at some point when they get to 15, 16, that's the completely wrong way of bowling and it's how you get hurt. So can we actually kind of pull the reins in a little bit and say actually alignment be safe be get the key safety points through back foot contact into your bowling action in place and then knowing that they'll be able to get all of the guns that they need between front foot contact and ball release as they develop their strength and get older um and that's been quite successful i think through western australia um tim mcdonald's gone into that job now who i was working with with england cricket the women's cricket side so in a strange kind of swap Matt Mason's gone to England women and Tim McDonald's gone from England women to Western Australia. So it's kind of nice to have still that contact with both of them. Um, but I think Western Australia's pace bowling is kind of the strongest probably in the world from a development point of view currently in terms of who they've brought through and who how they've gone about it recently in domestic cricket. They won everything, I think, for the last couple of years. I think doing the switch where you get to go to Australia is definitely the, the winner in that trade. So I... Uh... Yeah, one of them's lost both ways. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in terms of uh, people, and you hear this phrase quite a lot, can just naturally bowl quick. 
If you look yeah. at like Joffre Archer, for example, it looks almost effortless when, when he bowls and bowls quick. Mark Wood is slightly different. It looks like he's getting every ounce of his body through to obviously uh, bowl. But is that essentially down to the fact that they have a lot of the key factors that you discussed earlier, plus their alignment is good. So it just allows almost a natural flow, which then allows them to bowl at these quicker uh, speeds um, and it looks almost effortless. It, yeah, I think it should look effortless. Uh, effortless. Um, I think with uh, with Woody, his physique's a little bit shorter than what you'd typically expect a rapid fast bowler to look like. So he does have to drain every ounce of it out of his physique. But again, he's got ridiculous strength at super mobile or hyper mobile positions. So um, he can get himself into positions that most people can't, but he's also very strong in them positions. So a lot of us get into positions where we're right at the end of our range of motions. And if somebody touches us with a finger, we'd fall over. And these fast bowlers can get into these positions and still produce ridiculous amounts of strength for, to keep themselves in them positions. Um, and then there is the other side of hypermobility. So people like Jasper Boomerah, Joffre Archer, um, have hypermobility within their bodies. And Jasper Brummer is probably the greatest example because he's quite hypermobile across all of his body and he gets really aligned in straight lines and it looks a little bit different to what we consider fast bowling to look like. Um, but my master's study right back at the beginning was around elbow hyperextension and what effect that has on ball speed. Um, and again, I built a simulation model to just kind of go through different levels of hyperextension and had a look at what effect it had on ball speed. Um, and we were seeing that with about a 20 degree hyperextension, which I would expect Jasper, Boomer and Joffre Arch to be higher than that. They were getting about a five mile an hour increase in ball speed compared to somebody that couldn't hyperextend. So I think a lot of these times we will look at these bowls and we think they look slow and languid, but actually they're actually quite quick, but the ball comes out quicker. And then the other side of that is if you watch like the batters reactions when they first face them, they like got no idea why the ball's where it is and how quick it's going. And we saw with Joffre when he first played, he hit a lot of the Australian players in the body and the head. Um, and it took them four or five overs to actually get that whole brain to program Joffre's bowling action in. And once they did, they started to have some success against it. But yeah, I think a lot of the time these hypermobile factors make it look like they're effortless, but actually they're still trying really hard. It's just, it comes out a lot quicker than what it looks like it goes in. Um, and then from another side of that, if you go back to the theoretical point, it shouldn't be hard work because we're trying to stop momentum horizontally and we're not trying to smash it into the floor. And a lot of bowlers I've worked with, when you actually um, improve technique, and I know this is true speaking to Kevin Shine, Matt Mason, Glenn Chapel, they turn around and go, this feels really easy. Um, and then some players even say, oh, I must be bowling slower because I'm not hitting the floor as hard. Um, and trying to get players out of this mantra of, big forces up and down is good. So it's not actually true. The fastest bowlers actually have less forces up and down, but they have more forces forwards and backwards. So they stop themselves more effectively um, and they're not collapsing through the bowling action. But a lot of players think, oh, I've got to hit the floor really hard. And if I hit the floor really hard, I'll bowl really quickly, but it's the complete opposite. And we've actually clocked players bowling quicker when they think they're bowling slower because their ground reaction forces don't feel like they're big enough to them, which is bizarre for them anyway yeah no, I, I guess the exciting bit of what you've said there is that you do have some outliers which allows you to discuss like you look at uh, Malinga for example as a really different action I can imagine that that's one where you look at as an outlier and go okay what aspects of our 
uh, breakdown does he go through to allow him um, to, to, to have this speed that he did? But like the Joffre Archer and Boomer one that you've spoken about as well, is like, okay, what is it that's the outlier that allows him to have it? And actually there's a hyperextension of the elbow. So imagine those are the kind of the exciting ones to further validate the research yeah. to say actually look there's something here that we found that shows that they're just able to get more speed because of this one area yeah and one of the things that we did after pete Wormans's research was we took all the best bowlers in history or the, those that everyone said were the quickest and looked at photos and found that they all had three out of the four characteristics at, at minimum um so you can still bowl quickly with a bent knee um and there are different people through history that have rotated rather than trunk flex. A really interesting question for me at the moment is where, what's the limitation between the run-up speed and trunk flexing versus run-up slightly slower and having time to use your muscles? And eventually with strength and conditioning and our evolution, will you actually go away from what we think now and the rotation will actually take over? Um, and then my, my brain kind of goes into actually range of motion in the body. And as a human, are we designed to be able to kind of reach an equal sphere around our bodies? So actually, if you rotate, you can still go through the same range of motion of distance as you can going forwards and backwards with your hand. Um, and is our rib cage the limiting factor? And that it won't probably move for the next 500 years. So it won't change. So, yeah, I have some weird and wacky thoughts when I'm either laying in bed late at night or in the shower first thing in the morning around um, these questions and how we can kind of move the science forward to kind of understand it. But being in the applied side, you kind of get a bit, you're fortunate enough to kind of try some of these things at the same time. If someone's really committed, just get a couple of ribs removed and then you're flying, you're all yeah. good to go. <laughs> um, in terms of um, the this being presented back to coaches, how hard is it to challenge them or how hard was it? Because I guess with the research being a bit more prominent now, it allows people to see that success is. But to come away from narratives like you spoke about earlier, you said about like having you know hard foot contact and driving through the ground, that's probably something that coaches, if they're 50 years old, have been taught for the last 40 years. And it's something that they would have seen, well, you know, I worked with players and they had success doing this and it made them go faster. So I believe it. So how hard was that narrative shift to say, actually, if you can go along the horizontal plane, then so much vertical, you're going to see more results, even though it doesn't feel that way because it goes against the narrative of, of, of what everyone has been taught previously. Yeah, I think it's difficult. I've been really fortunate. So I mentioned earlier Kevin Shine. So I was really lucky that in my PhD, I had Kevin Shine, who was the national fast bowling coach for England and Wales Cricket Board, with me. So everything that I kind of found went into Kevin and then was disseminated from the national governing body to set and it was backed up with the evidence. Um, and now I deliver it on coach education sessions as well, which is always an interesting thing when you walk into a room and there's ex-international players that have had hundreds of wickets and loads of success and there's me going right you did it wrong for the whole of your career um you, and then yeah get laughed out of the room quite quickly so there's definitely a skill that I've learned and I've developed that with Kevin in terms of how you talk to coaches how you actually make it them think it's their idea before and then you kind of go yeah that sounds about right um so almost that psycho psychology of it's not you telling them that they're actually self-discovery as well. Um, but we still have it now. Like you look all over social media, the wrong messages are being sent out daily. And it's worrying from a, my point of view, because I know the next generation of kids are going to get hurt because of that messaging on social media. Um, but it's also incredibly difficult to fight because 
you're one person trying to send a message out and um it's most of it's just a language thing because if you say height you need high forces to bowl quickly it's not technically wrong it's just the direction of the force so if you don't be specific then it's a little bit of an issue um and then the message is around mixed actions and um lumbar spine is, it, injuries is really worrying and troublesome as well um so a lot of the success i've had with bowlers has been actually from an injury perspective rather than a performance perspective so um i did quite a lot of work with matt mason with the wa bowlers coming back from stress fractures rather than trying to increase performance although we did do some of that with some of the other bowlers um but it was from mixed messages and that's excuse the pun around mixed actions um all of the players within that pathway at some point within Australia have been told, oh, you've got a mixed action, you kind of need to change. But we know that 80% of the elite bowlers have mixed actions. So when you do a study that says who gets injured, the majority of your players are probably going to have mixed actions if you're looking at an elite group because just that's the nature of the beast. Um, so it's not sometimes it's probably not surprising that you can get this conclusion that mixed actions are bad. But Pete's research took 50, or Pete always researched, took 50 bowlers before they got injured and then looked at how many got injured after two years and 39 had stress fractures after two years, which is obviously a shocking number in terms of a percentage. Um, and then we went and looked at the technical differences and we found actually how you land at back foot contact makes a massive difference in your um, injury ratio or your odds ratio so how much more likely you are to get injured compared to somebody who doesn't and we were seeing bowling actions with 90 times more likely to get injured compared to somebody that doesn't get injured um sorry what just, what do you mean by back foot contact you just talked through that yeah so in bowling we kind of have the run up and you have a jump and then they land at back foot contact and then they land at front foot contact and then bowl so we a lot of the performance research is from front foot contact to ball release but how you transition between your run-up and your bowling action, which let's say starts at front foot contact, is really important from an injury point of view. And there's lots of things that can go wrong. So if you run up too fast, you can jump higher to wash that speed off. And then obviously all the force acts downwards. And at back foot contact, you generally land with a leg that's more bent because you can apply more force in that position to correct. You can change direction. So if you change direction and go towards the stumps, you need to then push your body back out again to be able to bowl where you want to. So again, you land with a bent leg to push. Um, but you also have the problem, if you run up too slowly, people tend to jump because they think that's how you generate power and force. Um, so we see this position where you land at back foot contact with a bent knee and a bent hip, which is really powerful, but it's powerful because it's trying to correct something that's going wrong. And the best players that don't get injured kind of have a straighter leg and kind of just like use it as a prop to kind of go over or like a lever and they just fall into front foot contact and then all of the magical stuff happens after that um so yeah it's been a wild journey in terms of trying to change coaches perspectives or stuff and there's no way we're anywhere near it but trying to talk in their language and using their words is probably the thing that i learned best from kevin shine and how to do it but you still have these arguments daily because everybody's got an opinion unfortunately yeah um, for sure I'm, so, also so not, I'm also not big enough to say i'm right about everything so it wouldn't like in the future my stuff might be wrong and i think it's important to be in that moment aware that actually science is moving forwards all the time and at some point my stuff's probably going to be dated as well so listening to those opinions even when you think they're wrong are probably is constructive because it gives you ideas for research as well yeah no as you said social media definitely allows everyone to have an opinion whether it would be right or wrong uh, um <clears throat> Sorry, in terms of the 
um, being able to assess people that might get injured, does the modeling programs that you have allow you to identify that as well to say, actually, this player with their current action is going to be at higher risk. So we need to do some work with them that allows them to reduce the level of the strain that's going through their back, through their knees or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, so the screening process from a experimental approach where they come in with the cameras and markers, we get an idea of the numbers and Pete's numbers and research and odds ratios get calculated and it will go back to coaches and give them an idea of what position their players are in. The model I did from a performance point of view starts at front foot contact and ends up ball release. So it assumes that you kind of land with the right parameters um, and we can play around with those parameters, but we can't go back and do the, the transitional phase yet. Um, it's something I often think about whether to build a model of that or do we know enough about it that we don't really need a model for it or not. But um, yeah, building models is complicated. The first one took me four years. So um, they're not something that you can just pick up and build straight away. Although like all things, software is becoming more and more prevalent to allow people to pick up and do things quickly. Um, I think unfortunately that kind of get loses the knowledge and when things go wrong in building these things you learn just as much as when you get the results out at the end so the doing is quite important as well as just picking things up and using so we can expect the next one in 2028 then yeah <laughs> well i'm kind of doing the prosthetic stuff at the moment modeling so kind of gone a little bit away from cricket but we're doing a similar sort of thing in terms of how can we change like the shape design and stiffness of blades and see how that affects motor uh, movement patterns and try and stop um diseases like osteoporosis lower back pain happening in people that use prosthetics so similar exactly the same methodology but just different people and a different outcome i know you said at the start very busy so i completely understand so i'm conscious of time because of, of, of what we allotted so last question for me which is if i were to speak to uh you know the co coaches you work alongside or the players you work with how would you hope they described you in three words and why yeah, I had a thought about this because I saw this was a common question you asked. And I think I think the first one would be something around knowledgeable. So I get called genius or quite a lot, which I hate because I think nobody's a genius. You're always learning. But um, yeah, knowledgeable in terms of what I understand, but also how to go about building more knowledge and trying to put the pieces and puzzle pieces together. Um, and then I think generous or, some, or kind or something around there, because I do give a lot of my time away to the coaches I work with. Um, because there's a passion of mine to make the players that are at the bottom that don't generally have as much information or money or resource to try and make sure that these messages travel all the way down to grassroots, um, which, again, being busy is difficult because there's hundreds of things I'd like to be able to do as in terms of social media and YouTube channels and things like that um, to try and give this knowledge out. Um, and then the final one, I think, would be probably translatable or some word around that because... I think a big skill of mine is being able to take this long, complicated, scientific, theoretical research words and then we actually walk into a room and deliver it as co in a coaching world so that coaches can actually pick it up and understand it straight away. Awesome. Apologies about the dog barking there. But uh, yeah, no, really good conversation. I really appreciate you uh, yeah, giving up a lot of time to discuss. And from my perspective, uh, I think, yeah, just a fascinating insight into this world and how... It's, it's progressed over the last 15 years and I'm sure it will continue to do uh, moving forward. So, yeah, really appreciate your time and uh, I'll be sure to keep an eye on your work. No worries. It's been really good to chat and hopefully we can catch up again once the prosthetic work takes hold in 15 years' time. Yeah, sounds good. Really appreciate your time. Catch you soon.
Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.